time. It was at the very beginning of the dial-up internet age when what you wrote as a travel writer could be read all over the world, right? So you couldn't really lie about a place when the people who lived there could say, yeah, you didn't do that. Or yeah, this is not a very accurate representation of our culture. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is a look into the craft of travel writing and is remixed from a recent nomadic network discussion of my 2008 book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, which is a collection of travel stories along with endnotes that detail the story behind the stories and how they were written. Moderating this book club discussion, which took place on Zoom with participants in various corners of the world, is Matt Kepnes, a.k.a. the travel writer and blogger Nomadic Matt, who's appeared on this podcast several times in the past. Together, Matt and I and other members of the book club talk about what goes into effective travel stories and how to report them from the road. Since this episode is about my book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, it might help if you have a copy on hand. But even if you don't, I've linked a number of the travel essays we mentioned in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. We use these stories to talk about the challenges and ethical obligations that go into writing travel stories. We talk about the way I travel and ride has changed in the two decades since I've been in the business and how change is normal and necessary as both a traveler and a writer. Again, this is edited from a Zoom discussion, so occasionally the audio falls out and there aren't specific introductions when people ask questions. This conversation took place a few weeks before I got married this spring, and I talk a little bit about that. I also talk a bit at the end about a new travel book I have coming out next year. The conversation starts with Matt asking me what inspired me to put all of my early career travel stories into one book and why I included the endnotes. Let's listen in. What inspired you to put all these stories into this book? Yeah, well, this was this was the big journey that eventually led to vagabonding. I think you and maybe a lot of people uh, who, who are listening know what it's like to just be at the beginning of this really long journey that, that's really becomes a part of you. I just finished uh, teaching in Korea for two years. And so I learned so many great lessons that applied to travel from Korea, but I was just starting the journey. I had just started to write for salon.com and I wasn't really sure what I was doing. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know what my organizing principle was for traveling the world. So I was telling people that I was traveling the footsteps of Marco Polo. It was very fashionable. I'm not sure what like backpacker trends are going on now. They, they could, they're probably COVID related. But at the time in Bangkok, it was sort of this hipster thing to visit the, the, the prison and talk to Western prisoners. I'm sure that the Western prisoners appreciated it. But as I say in the introduction of the book that I found this, this woman named Carla, she was from Puerto Rico. She had been arrested for smuggling heroin years before. And she just sort of didn't really care. Like she was very ambivalent about my visit. You know, she was... Uh, way cooler than I was. And when I was telling her about my organizing principle for traveling Asia, she's like, yeah, um, as you said, Chiang Mai, Marco Polo didn't go there. And so it's sort of, it's sort of through my idea of what there was to do of like sort of having a mission as a travel writer into question, because what was most interesting to me was sort of, it changed every day. And at the time they were shooting Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach in Thailand. So I decided to sort of do an experiment, do a little stunt with that movie. And that sort of changed the tone of my travel writing. And as I say in the, in the subtitle, it's, uh, what is it called here? I have, I have my copy of the book too. Uh, Stories and Revelations from One Decade as a Postmodern Travel Writer. It was really this time, it was the very beginning of the dial-up internet age when what you wrote as a travel writer 
could be read all over the world, right? So you couldn't really lie about a place when the people who live there could say, yeah, you didn't do that. Or yeah, this is not a very accurate representation of our culture. And so it felt like this new era in travel writing when I was sort of more accountable because I was writing for the internet in a way, you know, people might not subscribe to Connie Nast Traveler in Cambodia, but they could go online and read my stories and see what I was writing about. them. So it seemed like an interesting moment to be embracing this old, genre of travel writing. Um, of course, I wrote Vagabonding first, uh, just because after two years of travel, and Matt, I'm sure you can relate to this, I really felt like I'd been in this world for so long that I wanted to say something about what I've experienced. Um, and then the stories uh, were collected later, uh, actually when an editor at Traveler's Tales, and probably a lot of you are, are familiar with Traveler's Tales books, they have an annual anthology called Best Travel Writing and Best Women's Travel Writing, um, good people that work there. An editor asked me if I wanted to collect my stories, and I said, sure. And um, that's how I ended up collecting Marco Polo didn't go there. Because they are internet era stories, I thought, well, like people can read a lot of these stories anyway. How can I make them more interesting? So I wrote these end notes. It was like, at the time, I called it the DVD uh, style commentary track. No, nobody uses DVDs. But it's the idea that I tell the story behind the story that went into the magazine. And so while it's a collection of my stories, it's also sort of a peek into the thought process and strategies that go behind being a travel writer. Yeah, I, you know, flipping back through the book again, uh, I went through the end notes. It's not something you really see when you read travel books. Everything's sort of in the story. And I thought about it, like, this is actually something really interesting and unique that not a lot of writers do in travel or in general that I, I can really imagine. And so like, what really motivated you to do this? I like this sort of meta experiment of playing games with the stories that you tell. Um, literally one reason why I did it is because I wanted to offer the reader more that I just, some people who've been in contact with me had read a lot of my stories already. And so it's like, what can I offer the reader that goes beyond what the stories have already said? Cause all the stories in the book were previously published. But then also having read a lot about um, travel writers from generations before, I realized that there's a lot of stuff they were telling that wasn't, that they were leaving out of the story. Like Wilfred Thesiger wrote about these amazing travel books about uh, Saudi Arabia and other parts of the world. I realized years later that often he would travel as part of a British military cohort. Like he didn't even say, look, I was with this British military cohort. And so it seemed like a lot of these classic travel books we're leaving out some of the parts that made them most interesting. Gertrude Bell, I think, was a consul for the British government. And so there's a lot of classic travel writing. And this, this can apply to any nonfiction, I think. But for travel writing specifically, um, there's a lot of details that go behind the assembling of the story that I thought would are just as interesting as the stories themselves. And then since I was teaching travel writing, um, at first in, in Paris and later in places uh, in American universities, I realized that there's a lot of strategies that go into storytelling. And by the very fact of telling a story, there's some details that you leave out. There's some details that you emphasize more than others. And so I wanted to peek behind the curtain of storytelling and say that, yeah, when I was on, in this part of Australia, I was with five German tourists, but I didn't put them in the story because they didn't serve the story, right? But they, that doesn't mean they weren't there. Um, and so I think this happens everywhere. And even people who are very, like journalists will say, um, oh, well, you have to be very true to facts. And I agree with that it's true to facts, but the journalists always write in this voice of God voice. They write themselves out of the story. There's this joke that says, 
you know, a journalist walks into a bar, a guy comes up and shoots him in the arm and he staggers back to his newspaper office and writes, the journalist was allegedly shot this afternoon in a bar, right? Um, and so the fact that even journalists who are very concerned with truth write themselves out of the story to, so much, it feels important in a travel story that it's like, look, I'm Rolf, I'm this white dude from Kansas and I'm not God on the mountain. It's just me trying to tell what happened through my own point of view uh, in this place. And so um, that those are some of the many reasons why I thought the endnotes would make this more interesting than just reprinting stories that had already been published in places like National Geographic Traveler and Salon.com. Well, and I think, you know, travel writing, you can't really write yourself out of the story. I know, you know, you never want to make it I, 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 I in many ways. And, and that's different in blogging because it's literally like I did this. But without people read, I mean, this is my view on it, is travel stories as a way to learn about a place and use you as the vessel in which they imagine themselves in. So if it's just all voice of God stuff and we don't get to learn about like Rolf's quirky stories and endnotes and all this, it loses that relatability and, and personability that I think separates travel writing from other genres of writing. Yeah, well, I think, too, that so much of travel happens in a liminal zone. It happens in a tourist zone. And you're sort of an avatar for the reader. It's not like you go to Kenya and suddenly you're an expert on Kenya. Part of this, part of being a travel writing writer is admitting that you're an outsider, right? Um, and, and actually, sometimes it's fun to read, you know, travelers from other countries, be it uh, Charles Dickens in the 19th century or certain Arabic travelers in the 20th century, writing about the United States and thinking, huh, it's interesting that those are the details that they focus on. And so in a way, you have an interesting relationship to your audience. If you read Herodotus' travels, Herodotus is often considered the first travel writer. He's writing about the Persians for a Greek audience. So he's basically saying, oh, hey, Greek people, this is kind of weird about what it's like to be in Persia. It's not like he's an expert on Persia. He's just someone who's bringing back these details. And so I think in the kind of travel writing I did for Marco Polo didn't go there. And a lot of travel writing, probably the travel writing you do as well, um, like in your 10 years of Nomad book, you're sort of, you're the avatar for the reader. You're saying, look, American or Canadian or whoever, this is me in this part of the world. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this relatable? Isn't this confusing? And that's what makes travel writing interesting is that you sort of sidestep the idea of expertise. You're not a scholar, you're just a normal guy traveling in a way that might be relatable to the people who are reading uh, your book. And so when you were collecting the stories for the book, were you going for some sort of theme? Like, I mean, you are a very prolific writer. So like, how does what ended up in the book how did that end up in the book? Well, I had to choose from like a hundred different published stories, you know, of, of the hundred or so stories I'd written that I was kind of proud of. I had to choose 20 to be in this story. And one thing I was self-conscious about is so many of them are from Asia. It was just like, this is sort of the first part of my travel writing career. I hadn't really traveled in Africa much yet or South America much yet. And so I was self-conscious that it would make me seem like they were slanted towards Asia uh, in a weird way. And in retrospect, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You know, um, Asia is just where I happen to be. Um, 
my organizing principle was sort of tied into that that thing that Carla said in Bangkok Women's Prison, you know, the idea of not following in the footsteps of another traveler. And there are so many books, good books, actually, that are in the footsteps of other travelers, that I wanted to be able to sidestep that organizing principle in a way that revealed something about travel. So I, th I just think I picked the stories based upon um, either things that I liked uh, that came up in the stories or things that were sort of emblematic of what it's like to be a traveler, or maybe some, some ideas that if you look at the history of travel writing haven't really been covered because up until the time, if you look at my career before the internet, most people didn't really have, they weren't writing for online publications, you know, that they weren't networking in ways that you could for the online world. So I sort of wanted it to be representative of the travel world that I was in. And, you know, I wanted it to be good writing, you know, I wanted it to make, to make me look good and to convey stories that I thought were revelatory or funny or whatever. So do you, do you have a favorite? I have a favorite. Okay. Um, I'm curious, actually, I'm curious to know what all the people, I mean, it's sort of hard. I got sick of storming the beach because it was so popular. Like so many people read storming the beach and Bill Bryson chose it for best American travel writing, but it's sort of the beginning of my travel writer career. It was like the fifth thing I ever published. Right. What was your favorite? The backpackers ball at the mm. hotel. I, I really enjoyed because, you know, like, backpacking and all, and all that stuff like those stories to be a little bit more relatable into like how I travel and like the mishaps and adventures in there well I just did a podcast about that I actually talked it's amazing like the Sultan Hotel is one of my it was such a dirtbag place to stay but it was one of my favorite places to stay and, and you can relate to this because you write about hostling a lot literally I I have a bunch of really good friends who I met in that dirtbag hotel like people who um you know, who I'm still in contact with, you know, people who I share my most personal news with are people who just happened to be in that hostel years ago. And I'm sure it's the same way for you and for a lot of people who are listening that you meet, you make really great connections. And, and I think, as I said in the podcast, like a couple of guys that I didn't even write about in that story who are really good friends, like this changed their lives. Like one was an urban planner and the other guy was joining the Peace Corps. So when he joined the Peace Corps, he said, yeah, I'm into urban planning based entirely on hearsay that he heard in that hostel. And then he got stationed in Honduras and then he got, he got development work and he met his wife and now he lives in New Zealand and her kids, his kids have these crazy Kiwi accents. And so literally this guy I met who wasn't even interesting enough to be in my story, that experience <laughs> changed his life. That hostel changed his life. And I'm a, a huge fan of hostels because you have no idea you might be, again, in Egypt, you talk to a dude from, from California and suddenly you're married to a New Zealander uh, and living on the other side of the world. And so the, it's a great thing about travel and hostels specifically that you have no idea how this conversation is going to change your life. And so, uh, yeah, I have a soft spot in my heart for that hotel, I have a, for that, for that uh, story. I have a, a soft spot for my Beirut hostage crisis just because Mr. Ibrahim was such an eccentric guy. Um, yeah, the other ones, you know, like the story about Mr. Benny, there's two stories about Mr. Benny, the, the Burmese guy who cut my hair in Thailand. Um, and that was really... That was really special to me because I was writing for these American adventure magazines that sort of wanted a consumer idea of adventure when Mr. Benny was just this amazing guy who cut hair and had a very weak passport and was probably dying and had lived this amazing <coughs> life. And so just because I sort of had a, a, a soft spot on my heart for him, that's a that's one of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, when you travel, uh, when you're thinking of stories to write, I feel like 
some people plan their stories. I never know what I'm going to write in, in till it happens, right? If you go to destinations with uh, an idea or story in mind, or is it just, you know, something happened and you, then you're like, this is a story. I'm going to write about it. Like, what's your writing process like? Well, it's a combination of both. And some of the stories in Marco Polo didn't go there were like, assignments by magazines. Um, I wrote a story about the Falkland Islands for National Geographic Traveler that I don't think appears in this book, uh, in part because it was, I think it was written after I wrote the book. But, but like National Geographic Traveler sent me to the Falklands because I wanted to write about wildlife. And then when I got there, I was, I was way more interested in sort of the little England aspect of the Falklands, the, the idea that it's more English in the Falklands than England is. And I'm sorry if anybody's Argentine, the, the Malvinas, right? Um, there's a political uh, contention to the name of that place. Um, and, but my editor is like, no, you should write about wildlife. You know, we, we wanna print the story you pitched, not the story you found. And so um, that was frustrating for me, but you know, I, that's, that's the magazine business, right? And so some of the stories, I literally had a budget. I, I knew I was gonna get paid a dollar a word. Um, and so I wrote what I came to write about. Other times, you know, like Storming the Beach or, or actually a lot of my favorite stories like the Sultan Hotel, like the Mr. Ibrahim in Lebanon, it's just things that happen. And I knew as a travel writer, I was gonna write about something, um, but I sort of stumbled into stories and that's what I ended up writing about. In my, in my story, Be Your Own Donkey, like I sort of, which actually the cover of Vagabonding is a picture from being in the desert during the Be Your Own Donkey story. Um, but I sort of wanted to write a story about wandering in the desert. I did not plan on smashing my water supply and being stuck in the desert, right? So it was a misadventure that I had not wanted to do, but it ended up being my story. When I got drugged and robbed in Istanbul, I didn't want to do that, right? It's just something that happened <laughs> I don't to me. I wanted to get drugged and robbed. <laughs> right, right. Um, but in a way, it was more interesting than any story I would have found in Istanbul. The fact that I was drugged and robbed, and then I was just sort of stuck in the city. Um, and then, so I wrote that story as a whodunit, you know, because um, I think that you wouldn't have guessed, I'd sort of hung out with some shadier characters, and it, you wouldn't have guessed who it was who actually robbed me. So I wrote it as a whodunit. And the fun thing, I read about this in the end notes, the fun thing about that is when people read it in story, they're like, you're, when they read it in salon, they're like, you're a dumbass. We knew you were gonna get robbed. It's like, I said, I got robbed in the first line of the story. You know, of course you knew I was gonna get robbed. And so I took that as a compliment that they were so caught up in the story. They forgot that I told them I got robbed. The story was about being robbed. Um, and in a way that was an easy story to write because the conflict was very obvious. I got drugged and robbed, who did it? So a lot of these stories, you know, from, uh, from many moons ago. Um, now, older, right, wiser Ralph, hopefully won't get drugged or robbed in Istanbul. But how do you think, when you, when you reflect back on these stories and, and the writing of these stories, how, how has your writing changed since then? I know when I read my old writing, I'm like, whew, somebody actually read that? Like, this is no good. Can't believe I'm where I am. And so I just wonder, like, do you go back and read your old stuff? Like, how has your writing evolved? In a way, I miss sort of the naive energy of the young man, Rolf, who traveled from Marco Polo and go there. Um, uh, there's a lot of like, um, just sort of more self-conscious Rolf, more, yeah, what the heck, I'll do whatever I want, Rolf. 
Um, and so even though I sort of have a more scholarly understanding of travel now, and I'm probably a better prose stylist, I really sort of like the Rolf that shows up in these pages because he's sort of up for anything. And he's, he's a little bit self-conscious and insecure about things in ways that maybe, I mean, if you've read more recent books like Souvenir, which I read recently, it's just a little bit more scholarly. It's a little bit more arm's length. It's a little less personal. So I don't think I could, if I went out and traveled the world in the same places as this book now, I mean, I'm 50 years old now, I don't think I would find the same adventures. I think I would just, I would find different things. I'm also a little bit more disciplined of a journalist. Um, and so I would probably be more repertorial. I would, I would go in and do more interviews and, and learn more formally about the cultures that I was in. Um, but I miss that. I, 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 um, I don't really regret or am embarrassed by any of these old essays because it's sort of young, energetic, up for anything, Rolf, who's doesn't let the, the screen of, scholarly interests get in the way of a, of a good story. So um, it, it was fun. It was fun to reread the, the end notes and the, the stories in anticipation of this conversation. Did it sort of inspire you to bring back young Rolf in some of your writings? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in not just young Rolf, the writer, but young Rolf, the traveler. Um, and so about two, two years ago, I went, um, it was the 20th anniversary of me traveling through Asia for the first time. Uh, I'd started traveling Asia in 1999 and it was 2019. And so through my partners at Boots and All, I'm sure you know these guys, Sean Keener and those guys, I, I, and they sponsored my podcast. I went around the world on an itinerary and went to places like Sumatra and Sri Lanka and places I'd never been through before. And I tried to recreate just the energy of that trip, not as a writer necessarily, but just as a traveler. And I did, but again, I'm, I was 20 years older than I was on that first trip. And so um, even though, like I loved just renting a motorcycle in Sumatra and just driving around or like going to Rimba Beach Resort on the West Coast of Sumatra and just sitting there for a week and just hanging out in a hammock and just sort of in letting the day breathe in a way, in a way it was nice. I think I was sort of, I was sort of not sure what was going to happen with my life when I was first traveling the world. You know, I hadn't written Vagabonding yet. Nobody really knew who I was. I wasn't sure what my job was gonna be. And so being able to travel in the same manner, but, but sort of being a guy who was successful in certain ways and taught classes that people wanted to come to, um, it sort of took that, that youthful angst off the edge of my trip. Uh, and as I rode my motorcycle around um, Sumatra and, and Sri Lanka and places in 2019, I was just, I was an adult, you know, I was more relaxed. And so that sort of youthful tinge was gone. I, I don't think I'll get it back, but I do like being able to travel through a place with no plans at all. You know, just being able to wake up and say, huh, I'm going to go to the Mentawai Islands. I'm going to take that, uh, that ferry from Padang out to Sibirut Island. And I'm going to do this jungle hike because a dude told me about it in a hostel in Austria 20 years ago. And I did that and that was fun. But I think they say you can't, you can't, uh, uh, Heraclitus said you can't uh, step in the same river twice because it's not the river, the same river and you're not the same man. And that's true, you know, that as try as I might, I couldn't, I couldn't replicate exactly this, these stories because I'm an older dude and that's good. Life's, life's journey is as fun as a journey itself. And so it's been fun to travel the world as a, as a slightly older person. Yeah, I, uh, this year marks the 15th anniversary of my, around the world adventure um and i like was thinking about that you know and 
sort of basing my next book off like this idea of of change and how do you change as a traveler and as a person and how destinations change but still working that out but you know I I have found that my travels as I get older become a little bit more rigid and that is sort of the one thing I miss the most of that first trip around the world is the fact that like I was changing plans like left and right and there was you know never I never had to like be like oh I have a conference call or I have to go to you know I have to make sure I'm in the city by this time for this event or whatever it was like literally just whatever and I think that's the one thing I miss the most yeah, I love that. While you think about it, I just I thought of something. When I was in South Africa and Mozambique a few winters ago, I rented a four-wheel drive. And it was amazing because I could go places that I couldn't on the chicken bus. But I also missed the chicken bus, right? So when I when I have my own four-wheel drive, I can go to the isolated beach. But as just far as hanging out with Mozambicans on the bus, I kind of missed that. And so there's something to be said for just like good old dirtbag, 23-year-old travel when you don't have much money and you're up for anything. I miss that. Um, and so sometimes when people say, oh, yeah, you know, you, I, I want to travel, but I don't have any money. It's like, wow, the, you know, just the, your, your solution, your problem solution matrix when you have no money is great because you're traveling like a dirtbag and you're, <laughs> you're meeting people all the time for that reason. Yeah, yes, yes. So um, I want to take some questions for the audience. Well, Rolf, this was a, an extremely interesting read. <laughs> I mean, the, the variety of the stories and the, 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 your language and your way of um, expressing yourself is, is really, really extraordinary. So thanks for that. Thanks. But my question was, um, how much time do you spend on the road now compared to like when you were going through that process? And, and I have a, a part two, which is you look like you're in a house. <laughs> Uh, so, so are you in a house or are you on the road somewhere? I'm in a, I'm in a house. I'm in my house. Um, I, I was showing, I was showing, uh, wow. the other guys, my bookshelf there. That's, that's my one, uh, material indulgence is books. Um, I, I, I travel less, you know, I've had this house as a home base. Um, I guess, I guess, uh, to contextualize this, I'm going to have to out myself. I'm going to get married in like three weeks. Um, oh, congratulations. Yeah. So, so like after wandering the earth as like the world's oldest bachelor forever, I met my soulmate in Kansas, which is where I'm from, uh, during the pandemic. Like she was supposed to be in Berlin. I was supposed to be in Rome. She came home to her family, which is about 70 miles away from here. And we matched on a dating app. And it's like, uh, we showed up, she showed up on the first date. And it's like, oh, there you are. You know, like I just met my person. It's, it's fun. So I think you are a different person at different times of life. 15 years ago, I got this house. It's, it's way more my house now that she's in it. It's funny, like on our first date, like there were dust bunnies in the corners and most of my stuff was still in plastic boxes. And except for the books in my bed, like my stove barely worked. I'd never used the oven. And so now my, my house after 15 years finally feels like home and I'm gonna get married. She's a big traveler, of course. Um, she she lived in Europe for a long time. She she's an actor. She studied in in London for a while, um, and so of course through COVID, I just hung out with her. We took road trips to Colorado and Kansas City and stuff. Um, but on a given year, since I've gotten this house, it's made me less of a vagabond. Um, and so since I got the house, I've probably spent in, depending on the year two to eight months a year traveling. Um, I would like to take my new wife 
around the world next winter. <laughs> so I guess it just depends. Like, um, I think being married, well, she's a, as an actor, she's a freelancer too. So we, we're not really beholden to place. Um, so it'll probably stay the same that like in a given year, I'm not going to be traveling full time. Like I did during this time. I mean, I sat in a, I wrote vagabonding in a, in, in Thailand and in, in basically a residence hotel room. Um, so yeah, it'll be a little bit more settled, but sort of in my own vagabond way. So probably still like two to eight months a year, I'll be on the road. I still teach my classes in Paris each summer. Um, uh, Kiki, my, my wife-to-be speaks German and has a lot of friends there. She has family in Norway. Uh, so the adventure uh, keeps getting more fun and, and more complex, even though I have a shelf full of books and a house to live in and in three weeks a wife. So it's fun. Hi. Uh, thanks so much. Um, my question is about uh, your philosophy of uh, writing. And also you spoke about organizing principle. I was in Jordan in 2006 and an article you wrote in the Jewish Journal came uh, to my attention. And ever since then, I've stuck to this sort of idea of uh, you said that you wrote by myself and for myself, an author, an audience of one. And I just wondered to what extent that has changed and whether you still adopt that approach in your journal writing. Uh, for me, it was quite enlightening. and I still follow that with my blog and my teaching. Thanks, Ralph. Really good to talk with you. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think was just to clarify, was I specifically talking about journal writing or travel writing in general? Uh, it was, yeah, it just, it was called the art of keeping a travel journal. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that was a column I did for Yahoo news back in the day, um, which is an interesting experience writing uh, for not Yahoo news. Yeah. One great thing about a, a journal is that it sort of absolves you of having an audience, you know, so much of what I write about in the end notes to this book is about formulating the story for the audience, trying to remember that, this, that the audience has better things to do than read my book. So I should probably keep their interest. You know, I should make this being drugged and robbed story a whodunit. Um, but journal writing, the great thing about journal writing, actually, I, I use a lot of journal exercises with my class in Paris because uh, oftentimes writing students are super self-conscious. They don't want to write a sentence that's bad or make a dumb generalization about the poor German in the Speedo. And so they don't write anything. Instead of writing something bad, they write nothing. And so the great thing about keeping a journal is that having an audience of one for one, of yourself for yourself, it allows you to be unselfconscious and write poorly and write spontaneously and make dumb generalizations. And of course, later on, as those journal entries become finished essays, you're going to have to fact check them and, and see, does, is the Korean person who said this, is that actually what they said? And, and there's all sorts of things that you unpack as your audience becomes public. But I think one great thing about a travel journal is that you can just unload. You can just, you can just, I don't know if vomit is the right metaphor, but you can just sort of purge all your thoughts and all your feelings. And I think just like my, my, um, my wife-to-be, who's a couple of rooms over, she's been journaling her whole life as a travel journal, but as a personal journal, she doesn't like rereading her journals because they're so emotional. Like they're just raw emotion. I'm less emotional in my journals, but I'm much more... Um, happy-go-lucky and freewheeling and less likely to stick to facts. Um, and so what that does is it gives her permission to sort of use her journalist therapy and sort of sound some emotions and make sense of certain emotional things um, that she might not sort of tell all sorts of people. I'm allowed to sort of speculate, why did this part of this neighborhood in, in Morocco smell bad, right? So I, I can, it's sort of my first draft of making sense of a place in a way that is just for myself. And it's just little, little sticky notes to come back to so that when I'm sitting at home, 
I can maybe solve the mystery of why this particular thing in this particular place didn't make sense to me. Uh, so that, that's interesting that you grabbed onto that particular detail. As a young aspiring travel writer myself, I'm always curious to know about uh, the travel writing process behind the scenes. I love the detail that you put in your stories like, oh, there's that old man down the street or that kid playing soccer. There's just so many intricate details. So do you always keep a journal with you and a pencil and just like once in a while in the scene, jot down what you're noticing? Basically, I keep little pocket sized notebooks and I don't write narratives, I write details uh, because I can remember the story of what happened in a given situation. What I'll forget is those little kids playing soccer or the name of the street or the color of the shoes of the person that I thought was interesting. And actually you can see, I have some stuff in this book um, that they're just very, very short notes that they're basically those details that make the story that come alive better. And I actually have a storage bin, actually it's under my desk now, um, that's full of these notebooks. I have. I don't know if I have a hundred yet, but I have a ton of them. And they're just these raw impressions from, you know, 80 countries around the world. Um, and I read a lot of them when I went back to look, to write the end notes for Marco Polo didn't go there. They reminded me of certain things. They jarred their, your memory. And actually a journalist named Tracy Kidder talks about um, note-taking. There's another thing in my Paris writing classes I talk about is that he talks about how what you'll remember is the emotional texture and the narrative texture of your story, but you'll forget all of those little details. And also those details are great memory triggers. You know, if you can talk about a taste of a certain dish or the smell of a certain street or a certain weird shoes that this kid was wearing in Namibia, then suddenly the world will come more into the mind in your book. And I think Hemingway talks about that. He says that um, he says three specific details can make that Cuban market come alive, you know, that everybody, I think the details he gives is that in, a, in this Cuban market, the, this guy picks up a fighting rooster and he put the rooster's head in its mouth and he blew on it to make it angry so it would fight more viciously, right? Well, that's the telling detail of that Cuban market. Those are the details that you write down because those are the details that make it come alive for the reader. Um, these days, you have another thing that you fit in your pocket that works great. There's the Moleskine notebook, but there's also this that you can, like when I first started traveling, a roll of film was like three bucks. And by the time you got it developed, it was like five more bucks. And pretty soon you were $10 in and most of the photos weren't very good. Well, now that you have a smartphone, you can take a hundred pictures a minute, right? And so oftentimes if you see an interesting street, you can take pictures of it to have those details that'll come back to you later. If you hear an interesting song, and I did this when I was in Sumatra in 2019, um, you can record it. You can use your audio note and record it. Um, and so your toolkit as a travel writer is even stronger now. Um, in fact, um, a specific example, when I was in Sumatra, the, our host in the, in the, Sibiru, in the Mitsui Islands, in this, these very Stone Age tribes that were living in the jungle, this, our host was singing this song and I recorded it and I played it for his cousin who spoke English later on. It's like, what's your, what's your uncle singing about? It's like, oh, he, it's a morning song. He misses his dad. It's about the fact that he lost his father. Well, I probably wouldn't have gotten that detail had I not um, recorded it and been able to play it back for him. So um, yeah, those details are essential. Again, for anybody thinking of travel writing, it's those million and one little tiny details that go into your notebook and into your audio files that are what you're going to forget when you sit down to write the story. Rolf, if you want to share where else people can find you, where they can find your work, anything that you have upcoming, please go ahead. 
Yeah, well, you can find me at rolfboss.com. I'm one of these old school guys that still uh, interfaces through his website. So many people message me through Instagram now. And yeah, I teach a Paris Writing Workshop every summer. Uh, there's different offerings there. You can go to pariswritingworkshops.com to find more information about that. I did because I'm getting married and actually I'm writing a new book. I'll tell you about that in a second. I'm not doing it this year. There's just so much uncertainty going on. And a lot of people said, yeah, I don't know if Paris is going to be Paris. I don't know if I want to take a mask off to eat a baguette. So I, I canceled it until 2022. Pariswritingworkshops.com is a place to go. It's going to fill up really fast next year because so many people are excited to get back there. Uh, and then I have a new book, Random House. Uh, I just signed, I haven't announced this publicly. Gosh, maybe I shouldn't. But yeah, I have a new, I have a new book with Random House coming out next year. Uh, it's sort of a spiritual uh, successor to vagabonding, really. Um, I probably shouldn't say too much about it because I, I don't think I've signed the contract yet. But uh, <laughs> provided that Random House doesn't think I'm a horrible person in the next year, they're going to publish my next book, my fifth book. Have I written five books? My fifth book next year. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts as Remix from the Nomadic Network Book Club. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to upcoming Nomadic Network events in my own book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.